morning. That was our Daniel song. And so I know we are eager to get back to the book of Daniel together. So let's go to Daniel chapter 10. It has been, I don't know, six weeks or something. But we will start into Daniel 10 this morning by Bible study next week. Lord willing, we'll be into Daniel 11. And believe it or not, we will finish up here in just the next couple of months, this study through the book of Daniel. I want to review the first nine chapters of Daniel, but instead of doing that now in the sermon time, I'm going to do that in the Bible study after, so make sure you stay for that. Uh, So we're going to start right into chapter 10 with just one brief bit of review in a moment. Let's stop, though, and pray first. Our Father, we come to you now and just commit to you all the rest of this study in the book of Daniel. And we long to both understand Daniel 10 through 12, through it understand the whole book, which is to understand you and what the mind and purposes of God are and what you are doing among the nations and in human history for your glory. And through that, what you're doing here in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, for your glory. Our prayer is that this study would be used by your Spirit to transform us, just as we just saw in Ephesians 5.1, that we might be imitators of God, that we might walk in love, that we might know how to live when the world is on fire. So we, we come and we present this to you. We commit ourselves to you. This is not for the purpose of Bible trivia pursuit, but for the purpose of hearing and being changed by the words of the living God. May that be the case this morning and for these next months. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon is titled, How to Survive Bible Prophecy, which might sound a little odd or even downright gimmicky, but you know, Daniel 10 is about how to survive Bible prophecy for two reasons. Number one, Daniel 10 is all introduction to the final vision or revelation in Daniel 11 and 12. It takes us a whole chapter just to get ready for it. And number two, Daniel is not sure whether he is even going to survive this. At times in Daniel 10, he is both fearing for his life and passed out on the ground. And so I think it is fair to say this is about how to survive Bible prophecy. Look with me to just kind of jump ahead in the chapter. Look with me, Daniel 10, verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them. And they fled to hide themselves. Thanks, guys, for being there with me. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And then the end of verse 11 says, I stood up trembling. Verse 15, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, Oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. So I think it's fair for us to say the question here is, how do you survive Bible prophecy? And that might seem like a question that only matters for people who get really excited about Bible prophecy, but it's not true. It's actually a question for every one of us who cares about the Word of God. How do we handle the hard truths? How do we handle the heavy truths, especially heavy truths about the future? And then it connects to the question, how do we handle any time in our lives when the future is grim? So let's get started here in Daniel 10, and 
As I said, most of our review is going to come in the Bible study time later this morning, but just one thing as we begin. The book of Daniel contains seven major revelations from God. Two of them are about the immediate future. Five of them reach into the more distant future. The two about the immediate future are are, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the tree, which is about his humbling that happened just a year later. And then there's the handwriting on the wall, which foretold Babylon's fall that very night. So those were revelations for the very short term. The other five look into the more distant future. So there's the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar about the statue in chapter 2. And then there are four visions that God gave to Daniel. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and then the one we're beginning to look at now in chapters 10 through 12. So five major revelations from God in Daniel that were not just about the immediate future back then, but continue into the distant future. And we're coming now to the last one of those, which is in chapters 11 and 12. And chapters 10 is a long introduction to that. So chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So this happens at the very end of Daniel's life, a couple of years after Babylon fell. This might be about the same time as the lion's den story from chapter 6. Um, it's at least generally the same time. Babylon has fallen. Cyrus and the Persians are in charge. It's the very end of Daniel's life. He's probably in his mid-80s. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. That word is the revelation in chapters 11 and 12 from God to Daniel. A word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. Well, that's interesting. That's the Babylonian name that was given to him way back when he first arrived as a teen exile, when they were desperately trying to turn these Jewish boys into good Babylonians. I don't know for sure why Daniel mentions it here, but it reminds us that he's still far from home, still in a foreign and godless land. He's still in exile, you could say. And it reminds us that this is the same guy (laughs) more than 70 years later, still right where God put him and where God promised he would be. The end of verse one says, the word was true and it was a great conflict, meaning It was about a great conflict. That word has lots of meanings related to trouble and conflict, but it's often a military word. This is the, if you know that phrase, the Bible phrase like Lord of hosts, this is that same word hosts, just a little bit different meaning. And so it's saying that this revelation Daniel received in chapters 11 and 12 would be about constant geopolitical conflict as well as great trouble for God's people. And the end of verse 1 says, he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Not that he understood it perfectly, and not that he got every question answered, because as we're going to see, the book of Daniel ends with God saying, okay, Daniel, time for you to go now. Um, That's all you're going to learn. We're not going to answer the rest of your questions. That's what you need to know. But what this tells us is that Daniel got the point. He understood the overall message, and that's exactly what our prayer is as we study this book. So in the third year of Cyrus, God revealed to Daniel a true message about great conflict. And by the end, Daniel at least got the big picture. He got got the point. Verse 2, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. That means in the days leading up to the revelation... Daniel had been mourning for three weeks, and not only mourning, but as we'll see, he was fasting and praying for the purpose of seeking understanding. And this is the right approach to Bible prophecy. So how do you survive Bible prophecy? Number one, start with the right approach. Why do you want to know about Bible prophecy? There can be some unhealthy reasons, right? There can be some unhealthy approaches, but what we see in Daniel is a really healthy approach. First of all, he was mourning, as we just saw in verse 2. We care about Bible prophecy because we look at the world around us and we say, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. There is so much injustice and hatred and evil and sin and rebellion. This is not honoring to you how long, O Lord. 
Remember, Pastor John challenged us last Sunday about whether, like Jesus, we look at the crowds and see them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or do we not notice that? Jesus was deeply moved. I was reading this week in Acts 17 and was reminded of when Paul comes to the city of Athens and it says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. It's so easy to look at the world through the lens of ourselves and our own lives or to look at the world through the lens of the current news cycle. But if we look at the world through God's lens, we see broken lives and a broken world that is not only ruining people and send them, sending them to a Christless eternity like Pastor John preached about last Sunday, but also dishonoring the Creator. And when we feel that sorrow, we want to know what's going to happen. Where is this headed? What's God doing? But now, having said that, we have to remember that we... We shouldn't just feel that sorrow and ask that questions because we look at the problems out there. We also, if we look honestly at the struggles of God's people, wouldn't we feel some of the same sorrow? Not in in the same way of going to a Christless eternity, but how much suffering do you know of in this church family right now? If you just made a list. And not only do we look at the suffering here and the sorrow here and the sin here and the sin struggles here, we also look then at our own hearts. And you see your own struggles and your own temptations and your own doubts. And we say, Lord, what are you doing? How long? Remember that in the last chapter in Daniel 9, Daniel was repenting of his own sin and the sin of the Jewish people. And so as he saw the sin in his own heart, then the sin of God, the spiritual condition of God's people, and as he saw that God's name was being kind of thrown into the gutter, he was repenting and he was praying, but he was also asking, Lord, what are you going to do? He was interested in prophecy, but not, but I mean, but from a perspective of mourning, mourning all that was not right in his heart, in God's people and in the world. Now, here in chapter 10, we actually get a couple of specific clues to uh, why Daniel might have been especially mourning now. So it says this is the third year of Cyrus. So that tells us that the the first return of exiles back to Israel had already happened a couple years before this. But remember, a couple things about that were really sad. Number one, there weren't that many that went back. A lot of Jews didn't even take the opportunity and go back. And secondly, when they went back, they started working on the altar and the city and some of the temple and so forth. But then there was a lot of opposition, including some opposition from their own people, and they just quit. And so have you ever had this in your life where you were looking forward to something, looking forward to something? It was all you wanted. You dreamed of it and dreamed of it. And when you got there, it ended up being really disappointing. That's what had just happened for God's people. The end of exile was all they hoped for, all they prayed for, all they dreamed of. And now a couple years later, it was like, oh man, this is a mess. We're a mess. What is going on? So that's the first clue to why Daniel was mourning. And then the other thing is verse 4 gives us this really precise detail. It says, on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river. So it sounds like his three weeks of mourning were leading up were the three weeks before the 24th day of the first month, which tells us that he mourned all the way through Passover. Now, Passover in general was a feast of celebration. But at this point in Israel's history, Daniel was just mourning all the way through that. We're going to talk about this a little bit later, but for now, the point I'm making is this. We cannot approach Bible prophecy for the purpose of intellectual trivia or sensationalism or sounding smart or anything like that. We care about Bible prophecy because we look at the struggles in our own hearts, in our brothers and sisters, and in the world, and we are grieved for our sake, for our brothers and sisters' sake, for the sheep without a shepherd's sake, and for the glory of the Lord's sake. And we know there's got to be more that's coming in God's plans. 
So part of Daniel's approach was mourning. Then we see in verse 3 that he was also engaging in a certain type of fast. It says, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. There are several different ways in which you can fast. And this wasn't a total fast from food. What he chose to do was abstain from some of the more luxurious things that would have been available to him, probably because of his government job and many decades of service in in the palace. He had luxurious foods that were available to him. He had oils and lotions and things that could make desert life more comfortable. And it just didn't seem right to him to be partaking in those kind of comforts and luxuries when there was so much to mourn, when there were such heavy spiritual burdens. So he didn't have to do this. This is just a voluntary fast. But, but he chooses to refrain from these, these more luxurious things. Verse 12, the angel says that Daniel humbled himself before his God. That's what he's trying to do. So, in addition to approaching prophecy from the standpoint of mourning, he is approaching it from a standpoint of fasting and humbling himself before God. See the contrast between that and some of the arrogance that sometimes comes out of Bible prophecy study? This is a perspective of humility before God. And then the third and fourth aspects of his approach are found down in verse 12. Because this is where we find out a little bit more about what he was doing during those three weeks of mourning. So this is an angel talking to Daniel, verse 12. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand... So during these three weeks, Daniel had been seeking to understand what God was doing. The events among his own people and in the world didn't make sense. But as we learned earlier in Daniel, God is perfectly wise, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. So Daniel wanted to understand. Parents, what happens when you make a decision for your family that your kids really don't like. They don't agree with you. It doesn't make sense to them. How do they respond to that? Um, Because in our family, the children say, Mom and Dad, we know that you love us very much. And we also know that you are so much wiser than us. And so we gladly accept your decisions. Though, if you're willing at some point, we would also love to understand more. That's how it goes, but maybe not for all of you. Um, wouldn't it be good if it went that way with our heavenly father? If we said, God, I know you love me perfectly and I know you're perfectly wise and I trust you even though I don't understand. And I would love to understand more about what you're doing. If you might help me from your word, understand. That's what Daniel was doing. That's a great way to approach Bible prophecy. And then the fourth aspect is praying. I mean, we would assume that Daniel was praying, but the first time it's specifically, we're told that it's confirmed at the end of verse 12, when the angel says, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. So in addition to his mourning, fasting, humbling himself, seeking to understand, he was praying for these three weeks and prayer is essential in our approach to Bible prophecy. And something in verse 12 about prayer that's very encouraging to me is that the angel tells Daniel that from the first day that Daniel started seeking the Lord in prayer, his words were heard and this angel was sent on the way with God's answer. And I love that. One of the reasons I love that is because it's the second chapter in a row that this has happened. Just go back for just a second to chapter 9, verse 23. Here Gabriel's talking to Daniel, which is probably who's talking to Daniel in verse 12 of chapter 10 also. Chapter 9, verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Isn't that cool? Does prayer matter? Does God hear and respond? In both of those chapters, the answer was on its way as soon as Daniel started praying. He just didn't see it until later. The same thing is true for every one of us. God is always hearing and immediately replying, 
responding to the prayers of His children, even if we can't see any answer coming yet, and maybe not for a long time, He is immediately responding to our prayers when we pray. I love that. So that brings us to the end of point one. To survive Bible prophecy, we have to start with the right approach. And there might be uh, a gentle correction for us here in one of two directions. If we have maybe tended to be interested in Bible prophecy because we like to be right, we like to sound smart, we like to feel superior, we like sensationalism and conspiracy theories, this reminds us that those are terrible reasons to be interested in Bible prophecy because those reasons are all about you. And Daniel shows us a much better way that's about the glory of God and the good of, of people. On the other hand, there might be a person who's really uninterested in Bible prophecy. Christians, there are some Christians who just love the Bible, and yet they say, I just stay away from all that Bible prophecy stuff. I've seen so much, you know, mishandled, and that's just not for me. And again, Daniel shows us a better way, a heart that cares deeply about our own struggles and the struggles of our brothers and sisters and the struggles of the world. And so we want to hear what God says. We want to understand what God's doing. And so we, we come in prayer and say, Lord, would you help me listen to a book like Daniel? Don't just shy away from it because you've seen it misused some, sometimes. In other words, it's, it's selfish to be excited about Bible prophecy so that everyone can see how smart I am. And it's also selfish to ignore Bible prophecy because it doesn't seem to directly affect, you know, my comfort, my happiness today. Um, and another thing that's interesting about that is if we veer off track in either of those directions, we will then fall into one of the two dangers that we talked about at the beginning of our study in Daniel, and that is the danger of going too far or not far enough with Daniel. If I'm into Bible prophecy because I love to sound smart and clever, I'm going to go too far. I'm going to speculate. I'm going to make stuff up um, to sound smart in Daniel. Or if I'm just kind of going to ignore Bible prophecy because I don't want to worry about that, it's too complicated, I'm not going to go far enough. I'm not going to look hard at what God says and seek to understand in, in Daniel. So these are good reminders to help us keep on track when we're in um, such a critical point of, of Bible prophecy here in Daniel. Lord, this is your word. We want to hear. What are you doing among your people and among the nations for your glory? How can I be part of it? Help me to understand. That's, that's how we come and approach these things. All right. Now back to the story in chapter 10. So Daniel was mourning for three weeks, and then an answer arrived from God. And we'll see later in the chapter that it took the angel 21 days to get there. Now, I don't know whether Daniel said, I'm going to fast and pray for three weeks, and God sent the answer on the very last day. Or maybe Daniel just started to fast and pray indefinitely. And three weeks later, God answered. I don't know. Either way, three weeks later, God sent an answer in a big way. And that answer includes the revelation that we'll see in chapters 11 and 12. But first, before the revelation that God was going to give, God sent an astonishing vision. Verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris. The Tigris is, was a huge, huge river that was probably about 20 miles away from the city of Babylon. And for some reason, maybe the purpose of prayer, I don't know, Daniel was out there on the bank of the river. And then this happened. Verse 5, I lifted up my eyes. So he seems to be, maybe, maybe he's looking up above him. And I looked and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. 
Here's the beginning of God's answer to Daniel's prayer. He stood by the river. He looks up. He sees this vision of what looked like a man, but unlike any man Daniel had ever seen. We pause for a second and remember the big statue that Nebuchadnezzar built back in chapter 3. It was very tall, very skinny. Probably it was a statue of himself, though we don't know that for certain, but it's likely that it was a statue of himself. And he called everybody there to, to worship it. Now, what do, you, how, do you think that was cool, that statue? I mean, it was shiny. It tells us that because it was like gold-plated. But otherwise, I suspect it looked pretty kind of bizarre. First of all, it was like a man who was, I don't remember the numbers, but like 90 feet tall and 15 feet wide or 12 feet wide or something. That's a very skinny man. And second of all, sculpted faces are usually weird. And thirdly, if it was that tall and that skinny, the thing had to have like props. There were probably like big wood beams holding the thing up. And what did he have to do to get everybody to come and worship it? Threaten the death penalty. (laughs) You're going to come worship my awesome statue or I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. In other words, that thing that everybody worshiped was like, was really pretty dumb. It was a joke. Contrast that with this man, whom, man, (laughs) whom Daniel just saw up above him. This man was alive. Now he was shiny too, but not just the sun glinting off of the precious metals and stones. His face was alive like lightning and his eyes like flaming torches and his words like the roar of a multitude. This is not a statue. This is a person who speaks and acts and sees. And as we read there, the men who were with Daniel, they, didn't, they couldn't see it. God didn't let them see it. Just the aura of it terrified them so much they took off running into the desert from the river. Verse 8 says, Daniel had no strength left and his radiant complexion was fearfully changed. That means he went deathly pale. It looked like he was dead. Then in verse 9, the man spoke, and we're not told what he said. But as Daniel heard that voice, he basically passed out. He collapsed onto the ground into a deep sleep. Who was it? A surprising number of people think it was an angel. I just cannot believe it. I think it has got to be the Son of God a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus himself. I know that angels can appear in very terrifying ways, but there is not a description of an angel like this in Scripture. There is a description of God on his throne in Ezekiel chapter 1 that sounds like this, and there is in Revelation 1 a description of Jesus that has remarkable parallels to this. Let's go read it. Will you turn to Revelation 1? Not only is this description in Revelation chapter 1 very similar. There are like, I think, seven major visual parallels between the two. But it's also a kind of similar situation in Revelation chapter 1. Daniel in exile by the river Tigris, John in exile on the island, Patmos. Revelation 1 verse Nine, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Remember that the one Daniel saw also appeared in general like a man. Clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white 
like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. So I am convinced that when Daniel had been praying and mourning and fasting and seeking to understand for three weeks, God gave him a glimpse of the glory of Christ. The one who would be truly God and truly man, the true King of Kings, the true sovereign, the centerpiece of all Bible prophecy. How do you survive Bible prophecy? Number two, never lose sight of the glory of Christ. We have the completed word of God now. So the revelation of the glory of Christ is always available for us. Look back up in Revelation 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. By the way, you remember that? He made us a kingdom. And in Daniel, a huge point is the saints receive the kingdom. He made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Go over to Revelation 19. Prophecy is always about Jesus. You can contrast Revelation 1 when Jesus appeared to John with Revelation 19 when it's an angel who is before John. Revelation 19 verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Leon Morris says the true spirit of prophecy always manifests itself in bearing witness to Jesus. If we're approaching prophecy rightly, will be more excited about Jesus than about Gog and Magog and the red heifer and so forth. The result of studying prophecy will be that we'll love Jesus more and obey Jesus more and follow Jesus more faithfully. So, why did God grant to Daniel this vision of the Son of God before he gave to Daniel the final revelation? Well, the text doesn't directly tell us, but I think based on what we see in chapter 10 and then into 11 and 12, I think it's because Bible prophecy is heavy. It's heavy. As a matter of fact, someone might say, I don't like those parts of the Bible. I don't accept those parts of the Bible because they've got like all this death and all this judgment and all this horrible stuff going on. I don't like that. But here's the thing. One thing we ought to keep in mind about that, beyond the fact that it's true. Look at the world around us. What do you see? You know, we had a football player last Sunday who had that terrible cardiac arrest on field and, and you know, huge headlines about it, understandably, because it happened publicly in front of all these people. Um, and yet, every day, in eastern and southern Ukraine, young men are just mowed down. We're into the hundreds of thousands probably now of combined soldiers just thrown into the meat grinder of that 
that war. Horrific, horrific battle conditions and horrific death every day. And we could go around the world and find horrors everywhere we look. Then you come back to Bible prophecy and you know what you discover? It's actually one of the most realistic things you're going to find anywhere. What Bible prophecy sounds like is the real world with death and destruction and judgment and it's God stepping in to do something through it and about it, but it's heavy. Ultimately, prophecy is full of hope, but along the way, it can easily discourage you and overwhelm you if you're looking at it honestly. And the way you avoid becoming discouraged or overwhelmed is you keep your eyes on Jesus. Before Daniel could handle Daniel chapters 11 and 12, he needed to be blown away by a vision of the glory of Christ. That reminds me of another passage I'd like to show you. Would you turn with me to Joshua 5? Joshua chapter 5. The nation of Israel was at a tremendous turning point in their history. They had just passed over the Jordan River after a whole generation of exile in the wilderness. They had finally entered the promised land. And yet the battles ahead would be fierce. Joshua and Daniel are more than 800 years apart. But the parallels are really interesting. During Joshua's life, Israel was exiled into the wilderness. During Daniel's life, they were exiled to Babylon. Joshua lived to see Israel enter the promised land. Daniel lived to see Israel return to the promised land. And yet, when they entered under Joshua, they had a very difficult road still ahead of them. And when they returned during the time of Daniel, they discovered the road ahead was going to be very, very difficult. So we come to Joshua chapter 5. The people of Israel have crossed the river, but now they're looking up at what? What are they looking at? You say it. Jericho. The impenetrable city of Jericho. The first of so many overwhelming challenges ahead. Verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. Then behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. What's that about? Why did this commander of the army of the Lord just somewhat randomly appear to Joshua? You know, this this vision wasn't as terrifying as Daniel's, but I don't think it was just an angel who appeared to Joshua. Most of all, because he let Joshua worship him. And second of all, he told Joshua, this is holy ground. This was probably another pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Why did he appear to Joshua right, right then? Probably because Joshua needed this awesome encounter with the commander of the army of the Lord to give him the confidence he needed as he looked up at Jericho and all the rest of the huge battles that lay ahead of them. And I think that's the same thing that's happening in Daniel chapter 10. You can turn back there. To be able to handle what God was going to reveal to Daniel about the future, he had to have his heart overwhelmed with the majesty of Christ. And the same principle is true for us when it comes to Bible prophecy and really when it comes to everything else difficult in our lives when the future ahead is grim. What we need is Christ. So we're going to come back and talk more about that in just a moment. Um, first of all, though, I want to add this third point to your outline. I don't really have time to talk about it this morning, but your outline's incomplete without it, so it just didn't feel right to not include it. So number three, the third way to approach 
To survive Bible prophecy is to rely upon the Lord's reassurance, comfort, and strength. So we've already read all those descriptions of how Daniel lost all this strength and went deathly pale and passed out on the ground and said, I can't do this, I don't have any strength, and so forth. Um, What we're going to see next Sunday is that God sent one or more angels who directly ministered to Daniel with reassurance, comfort, and strength. Reassurance that he was loved by God. Two times they repeated that reassurance that we already heard back in chapter 9. Secondly, they comforted him that he did not have to fear. And thirdly, those angels gave him strength to get back up and receive the revelation from God. So we'll talk more about that next Sunday, but it finishes our outline for this morning. To survive any time in your life when the future looks really dark, seek, rely upon the Lord's reassurance, comfort, and strength. Okay, now go back to point two. Never lose sight of the glory of Christ. Down at the bottom there in the conclusion section, you see Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who have walked by faith before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You have a race to run. Whether you love or hate physical running, you've got a spiritual race. You've got to run. You are running. And it's a long race that requires great endurance. But that race has a founder and a perfecter. Founder means that he's the author. He's the source of this race. You could even say he's the trailblazer who goes first. And he's also the perfecter. He's the one who brings you to the conclusion, to the finish line of the race. And so that being said, the author of Hebrews says, look to Jesus. Set your sights on the guide. He founded the race. He brings you to the end of the race. If you can do nothing else, Just try to keep him in sight. Have you ever had a time in life when you weren't sure you could do anything else? It was all you could do to just barely keep your sights on Jesus. If you can't do anything else, this one thing, just keep Jesus in your sights. Always in any part of life, in any season of life, look to Jesus. But here in Daniel 10, the context is looking to Jesus when life is difficult and your earthly future doesn't look any better. When things look grim and maybe you you feel like you're flat on your face without strength and you don't know how you can possibly handle this, then this one thing, just keep Jesus in in your sight. And even if that's not your situation at all, if you're in a season of life where the future looks really bright and cheery, it's going to be a great 2023. What you still need more than anything else is to keep Jesus in your sight. So I just want to finish by applying this very practically. And there are so many ways we could go with that. We could talk about how to look unto Jesus and so forth. But I just want to talk about one aspect of this. In Daniel 10, we can see how intentionally Daniel sought the Lord. Now, he didn't know that it was going to result in a vision of the Son of God. So he wasn't like seeking Jesus like you and I can. But he was still very intentionally seeking God. He was mourning for three weeks. He was fasting from these luxuries and comforts. He set his heart. Verse 12, he set his heart to understand and humbled himself. That reminds me of chapter one, when it says he set it upon his heart not to defile himself. It was an intention that came from his heart. And it fits well with the biblical admonitions to seek the Lord to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. In Hebrews 12, to look unto Jesus. And so I think it's appropriate to speak this practical word of exhortation here. This won't apply to everyone. Don't be offended if it doesn't apply to you. Be grateful for the Lord's mercy if it doesn't apply to you. 
like it does to the rest of us. You don't seek the Lord passively. You don't keep your eyes on Jesus without effort. The current of life will not carry you close to Christ if you just float along. Is it possible that you have been recently being quite lazy in keeping your eyes on Jesus, in looking to Jesus? A few years ago, we um, were supposed to drive to Idaho to see my parents. And I think we were supposed to leave on Christmas Day. But there was a storm coming across the west, and we saw, man, we got to hit the road or we're not going to beat this storm. And so Christmas Eve, we left. In hindsight, foolishly, but we're alive. So we're pulling an all-nighter. This is pre-Nadia, but we had the other three girls. Crystal and I drove through a crazy blizzard of sideways snow across the mountain passes north of Beaver in central Utah, and it was hair-raising. It was terrifying, and got through that. And we drove into Salt Lake City early that morning. Early, it was like 4 a.m. Christmas Day, 5 a.m. Christmas Day, And we drove into Salt Lake City, and we were like the first cars on Interstate 15 after a couple of inches of snow. It was stunningly beautiful. And we stopped at a hotel and got a hotel room for three hours and got, I I slept, Crystal took the kids to the pool, and I slept for a couple of hours. And we got back in the, because we had to beat the storm to Idaho now, the rest of the storm, the northern edge of it. So we got back in the car and Middle Christmas Day morning, we're driving the last three and a half, it should be, hours to Idaho, and we didn't make it. And about 45 minutes from Idaho Falls, that blizzard hit us. And I was so exhausted, I could barely keep my eyes open, and it was total blizzard. And the road, a total whiteout, you could see no lines. And Crystal and the kids know I'm not exaggerating when I say that, it was terrible. But I found a snowplow. And I knew one pretty safe place to be. I did grow up in snow country, so I knew one pretty safe place to be on a terrible road in a blizzard like that is behind a snowplow. And so with every bit of the strength I had, I just locked onto the back of that snowplow. And it's one of the most miserable hours of my life. But we made it to Idaho Falls through that blizzard. But spiritually, somehow, it's not quite as clear-cut for us. We can be in just as much of a blizzard, and yet we're like, oh, there's Jesus, you know, the snowplow, I need to keep my eyes on. Nah. (laughs) And somehow we don't realize that when we do that, we just go right into the snowbanks. And it's really deadly. It's really, really dangerous. All the way through life, Hebrews 12 is saying what you've got to do is you've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. To use the Hebrews 12 illustration a little bit more, maybe it's like being on a trail in very dark woods, middle of the night, you've never been there before. You can barely see the trail, but you've got to get through. But the guy who made the trail is on the trail in front of you. He's the trail guide. What do you do? Just at any cost, just keep him in sight. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You seek Jesus in your own Bible reading and listening. You read great Christian books. By the way, 2023, read a book in the age of screens. Do it. You, you seek Jesus in your church family. You come for the preaching. You come for the teaching. You join Bible studies. You, you build friendships with people who love Jesus. You plan time to pray. It's not religious rituals. It's not motions. It's, there's Jesus. I got to keep my eyes on him. Right? It's got to be active. It's not passive. It's not floating along. Dozens of times the Bible uses the phrase, with your whole heart, 
Praise Him, seek Him, obey Him, look to Him with your whole heart. So I'm just being a little confrontational this morning and trying to ask if you have been just pretty much lazy in looking to Jesus. And today, if you said, yes, I think I've been lazy, how would Jesus respond to you? Fine then. That's all you love me and trust me. Fine, go your own way, do your own thing. That is nothing like how he would respond, is it? If you said, boy, I realize I have been lazy in seeking Jesus, he would say, come on. I love you. I'm working in your heart. I'm leading you. Come on, let's go. Come, come seek me. You may need to come back to him today. There's a little booklet that we've given out at church in the past. It's called Looking Unto Jesus. I'm sure many of you have it by Theodore M-O-N-O-D. Those of you who know French can tell me how to pronounce it, but I'm not going to try. And uh, written in the 1800s. And you ought to write it down if you don't have it. M-O-N-O-D. We've given it out at church in the past, but it's way out of copyright, so it's available for free all over the place online. Um, it's a free Kindle book. Um, it's, there are free PDFs of it, and there are just web pages that have it on them. Because it's not long. It's way shorter than a book and a little bit longer than, you know, a brochure. You can read it in probably 20 minutes. And it is a wonderful series of brief meditations to help you look unto Jesus. If you need a way to get started in seeking him, that would be a great place uh, to start. And it's got three sections. The first section is a, a number of little paragraphs about looking to Jesus and who he is, all that God is for us in Christ. And then after that, it moves into a second section that is looking unto Jesus and not these things. And in a sense, I kind of like the first section better, but man, that second section's got teeth when you get to the one that's like you. (laughs) When you get to the paragraph that's looking unto Jesus and not, and it's talking about the things you've been looking at instead. Um, it, it, It cuts deep. Uh, it's possible that I know these things because I read it last night before bed <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it was good and cutting for me. Um, and then there's a, there's a final conclusion section that, that's, uh, that's really helpful. So if you need a practical next step to take toward seeking Jesus, that's a great step. But remember, God intends for you to seek Jesus in the context of community. So another great step you should take is to Turn to somebody when this service ends. Go to somebody when this service ends and just tell them, man, God was really working in my heart about that. I have got to stop being lazy and I've got to start, see- start seeking Jesus. Tell somebody who can seek Jesus along with you. That's the way a culture of discipleship works. How do you survive Bible prophecy? Approach it the right way. Rely on the Lord's reassurance and comfort and strength. But maybe most of all, Never lose sight of the glory of Christ.